If you live in Australia, you live in one of the most vast continents on the planet. It's pretty much impossible to comprehend all of it in a single thought. Like just then, I referred to how big our continent is, and your brain tried to put that picture together. You can't do it. We all know the incredible and complex and intricate beauty that exists between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, this bit of dirt where we live. However, the sheer scale of it means that our little brains can't actually think about it or contemplate it properly. Now, if that's what happens with our country, what about our planet, our ocean, our atmosphere, our universe? How do we possibly comprehend something so utterly vast? And what does it mean for us when we appreciate the scale of it? Well, thankfully, Professor Brian Green exists in the same universe that we do. So we've got someone to talk us through it. He's astounding, an absolutely incredible human being. He is a world-renowned theoretical physicist, an author, his latest book, Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe, tells the history of our universe from start to its predicted end. But don't worry, neither you or me or anyone will ever, ever, ever give birth to or follow us will ever see it. Uh, don't let that scare you because when you listen to him speak, just the reverence, the humility that he has before the florid and glorious beauty and complexity of our universe and flaws of the humans that look at it from the most absolutely gargantuan megastructures in space to the exploration of the seven extra dimensions that are believed to exist at a quantum level below the atomic level inside your body and mind. The way he talks about this will just leave you with a sense of awe and a wonder. And in some cases in this conversation, I felt just pure joy. Now, Brian is coming back to Australia. He's doing some live events. You get to sit in the same room as this man. Amazing. 30th of March, he kicks off in Perth. The details of the gigs are in the show notes. You can get tickets there. Get along if you can. He's got a lot to give. The perspectives he dishes out in this conversation, they're not even the appetizer for this live show. They're, they're merely the peanuts in the bowl in the lobby on the way upstairs to the banquet, you know? It's still amazing, and I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, though, we play some commercials because we need to pay the people who work here. Back in a moment. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Science deniers are denying science because of the group to which they associate and their identity is bound up with that group. And that group has taken a stance of denying the ideas of science for whatever reason, typically because there's a sense of dissatisfaction with the status quo, a sense of fighting against the powers that be and science somehow is identified with those powers. I think the way to deal with this over a large scale is not so much with the scientific ideas, but really listening to why people feel that they have not gotten their fair share, why they feel they've gotten the short end of the stick and try to bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. That is world-renowned theoretical physicist, Professor Brian Green. This is Osher Ginsburg better than yesterday. Hello, welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday. It's a podcast that's here to make your day today better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show and every show will do just that. We do that by having conversations with people from all over the world, all walks of life, some of them experts in the field in each conversation. Has that written on the box? They go back all the way back to 2013. Uh, so many chats. If, if you want, get among it. I love making this podcast. I've been making it for a long time and I'm thrilled uh, that so many people are enjoying it each and every week. I'm Osha Ginsberg. I'm a podcaster, a TV host. I'm a, uh, a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm some somewhat backyard bandit workout gym guy, someone who's on eBay talking about perhaps trying to buy rowing machines now that my hip's feeling a little more flexible. Someone who sat in an ice bath next to Wim Hof the other day which is a story for another time. And um, I'm here three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays. Mondays, Wednesdays, I'm with a guest, and Fridays, I'm here with you. Very quickly at the top, uh, it's a bit sad, but I did want to talk about it because I think it's super important to recognize. It's a name you probably won't know, um, but an absolute legend of Australian television, a man by the name of Brian Walsh, passed away quite unexpectedly this week. He's only 67. Now, it's hard to put into words the impact that Brian Walsh has had on a television in Australia. He was an absolute true visionary, and a champion for on-camera talent, a champion for, I guess, you know, in our industry, we use the word product, but you know, television's a product. You look at it, you buy it, you pay for it. A champion for product that connected authentically with its core audience. I worked with Brian at Foxtel for many years. Brian, uh, he brought surfing in Australia when he was just barely in his 20s. He brought surfing into the like the big money world by you know creating these huge events that thousands of people would show up to. And he was a part of that. He created 
Kylie and Jason. You know, they they were on a TV show called Neighbours, but the hype, the connection that he, he gave them to their audience, that's Brian. Ama- an amazing guy, visionary, visionary guy. There's a reason that he was the director of television at Foxtel for so, so, so long because he just knew. He just knew. Every now and again in our business, there are people who just know. They can see it. They're Keanu in the Matrix in the final scene in the hallway. They see the code and they go bang, bang, boom, hit. And that was Brian. He was incredibly good to me and very, very influential in my early days in television. I have many favorite stories about Brian Walsh, but I'll tell you two. Uh, one was in 2000 when I was extraordinarily excited about going on my first work junket trip. I was over the moon because I'd never, ever flown business class and I was flying to the Reading Festival in London. And he said, and how are you going? I said, mate, I'm going to my first, covering my first festival, this three-day festival in Reading and I'm so excited. I'm going to fly there. And he goes, oh, turning left or turning right? I said, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm 25 or 26. So I, I don't know what that means, Brian. I'm flying. And he goes, yes, yes, yes. When you get on the plane, are you turning left or turning right? And I said, oh, turning left. He goes, oh, good. Good. That's what we like to say. Um, <laughs> he meant, are you flying business? Good. That's good. I'm glad you're flying business. And for the rest of my life, I've always, you know, we even wrote a song about it. Go left, life is peaceful. <laughs> I don't fly business class. I don't pay for flying business class that often these days. I used to pay for it a lot. I don't anymore. And it's just an amazing guy. The other thing that Brian, when I was doing Live to Dance in LA in uh, CBS, now at this point, you know, I don't go on about this, but I am still the first and at this stage, the only Australians who have ever hosted live national primetime network television in America. No one's ever done that except for me. It's the gold medal of the 100-meter sprint of television hosting, and I'm the only Australian to have ever won it. And, you know, I don't harp on about it, but it's a, it's a big fucking deal to people who are in my game. And when I was doing that job, all the Foxtel crew were over at the big screenings where they basically look at all the screenings from the studios and they go, okay, yeah, well, Game of Thrones, that sounds interesting. Yeah, we'll buy that. You know, they basically go and see all the stuff early and they bid on it and everyone, all the buyers go over there to try and bid on, on the shows they're going to buy that year. And while she invited me to dinner at the Beverly Hilton and I show up at the Beverly Hilton, it's a beautiful hotel there, on Wilshire Boulevard and there's this big table and Brian's got a few people there and like who comes to dinner with Brian Walsh it's like the guy's amazing so I'm sitting at this table with some pretty amazing people and Brian's like no no sit next to me and I sat next to Brian and you know he's got a lot of people at the table to you know connect with and talk to I distinctly remember he started saying it's like you are doing live network television, CBS Television City. This is it. You are doing it. This is incredible. I always knew you could do this. I'm so, like, this is a mate. Like, he understood what it means for someone who does my job, who hosts TV on, on camera, to achieve this thing, certainly from a country like Australia. And I don't know, I don't know. It felt like 20 minutes, but it was probably only three. I just had this moment with Brian and 
we got it. You know, I knew that what I was doing was a big fucking deal. But when Brian sat me down at that table and he just, you know, he held me on the shoulder. Yeah, he's a very, you know, really lovely man. And I just, it was the most amazing. It, it was like the moment that, you know, I'm never going to win a Logie, but it was like the moment when this person who I trusted so much and I looked up to so much and I knew had such a track record of identifying key talent before they were, you know, what we know them now as a household name. And I knew that he had pointed me out early on. For him to say that to me was that that was the gold medal going around my neck. And that was the national anthem playing while the stadium stood on their feet. And he's such an inspirational man. He he was creating and working. I saw him just a couple of weeks back. He had an office um, next to the production office where I'm making these documentaries at the moment. And I just saw him walking back and forth from the cafe. And he, he will be really, 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 really missed. And it's no understatement to say, oh, I don't think there will ever be another person like him just because of the way the industry is and where the industry is going and how the industry is changing. I don't think there will ever be another person like Brian Walsh. And I was incredibly lucky to have had the chance to engage with him at that level. And um, he was always so inspiring and always so interested in the new things that I was creating and the new stuff that I was doing. And I'm honestly, I'm, I'm bummed he never got a chance to come and see this new show that we're doing. Um, I think he would have really liked it. He will be incredibly missed, incredibly missed. And you can't, you cannot understate the impact, even though you may not know his name until I've just started speaking about it now, you cannot underestimate the impact this man has had on Australian culture and particularly culture that come to us through film and television. Astounding, incredible guy. And uh, just leaves this chasm in his wake because he really just was such a huge presence in our industry and it's extraordinarily sad and 67 man i hope the people around him and the people close to him are okay because he was a very personable man to work with so people have been very close to him that work closely to closely with him i hadn't worked with him closely for a number of years but um i hope they're doing okay it's <sighs> funny talking about death i don't know how i'm going to do this part because now I've got to get to the part where we talk to Brian Green. But I guess in this conversation with Brian Green, we do talk about death and we do talk about how religion showed up as a solution to death. And it is the one thing that we all have in common. You, me, everyone you know, everyone you love, everyone you don't like, everybody will all die. And between now and then, all we've got is this. Because this exact moment where I am saying these words into this microphone, where Andy is editing these words, when you're listening to these words, whenever and however you're listening to them, this is the only moment we've got at an extraordinarily expansive universal level and at a tiny, 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 tiny quantum level. And for more on that, we're going to have to go to the expert. So let me tell you about my guest today, Professor Brian Green. He is a world-renowned theoretical physicist, mathematician, string theorist, String theory is, um, I guess, the main goal of string theory is to unify the two pillars of modern physics. Okay, you've got quantum mechanics, which is very, very, very small stuff, and general relativity, which is kind of atoms and up. Among his most 
influential contributions that Brian has, you know, brought to the world are the the first kind of semi-realistic models based on explicit string compactifications. The the discovery of mirror symmetry. He worked on the discovery of mirror symmetry and some early calculations of microwave background imprints of quantum gravity. Like it's it's super brainy stuff. I couldn't have watched enough YouTube to get ready for this conversation, but I tried to do a lot, but I I couldn't do enough. Brian is the director of Columbia's Center for Theoretical Physics at Columbia University in Manhattan in New York City. He is chairman of the World Science Festival that he co-founded in 2008. To speak with an academic like Brian is an incredible honor. And you actually have the chance to be in the same room as Brian in just a few weeks from now. He's doing an Australian tour March 30. He kicks off in Perth. Tickets are in the show notes. Enjoy this amazing chat. Early in the morning in Sydney, late, late at night in New York with Professor Brian Green. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Um, thanks to the extraordinary molecule of caffeine, I'm up quite early to speak with you today, uh, which is yeah. my favourite molecule, I think. <laughs> I'm in Sydney, Australia. Where are you, sir? I am in Manhattan, New York City. Not a bad spot. Mate, it's it's so exciting that you're coming back to Australia, that you're coming 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 to tour and coming to coming to speak to people with this this take that you have on on the observable universe that we as humans have and why it might be interesting to understand that there's bits of it that we we can't observe but still affect us. A lot of people appreciate a flower, a beautiful flower. My wife, she studied horticulture. She gets super excited when the flowers arrive. And then I sing Marvin Gaye's sexual healing while she pulls one out and then pollinates the other one so we can get some zucchinis. She thinks it's creepy, but I'm like, hey, it's flowers. It's sexy time. But a bee sees a flower completely differently. The bee's optics see their stripes and shapes and all kinds of things. Is that is that a way into kind of describing how we as humans appreciate the observable universe, yet understanding there's so much more that we can't quite even comprehend? Yeah, no, I think it is because... You need to recognize that everything that, you know, we see in the world is dictated by these arbitrary senses that evolution has provided to us. And if we were under different evolutionary pressure, we would have developed other ways of accessing the world. And what we have access to is a tiny piece of a much wider reality and certainly other life forms do access the world in somewhat different ways. But what science does is it goes beyond what any life form that we're familiar with can do. And it accesses that flower down at the molecules and the atoms and the subatomic particles. And, and there, the flower is barely recognizable. And yet somehow those particles conspire to yield this macroscopic object that we call the flower, you know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind a bit of that ability to see the different spectrums of light. I probably also wouldn't mind a bit of the turtle magnetic uh, detection situation. Like that might be helpful. Uh, certainly, when I'm on the motorbike and I can't see the GPS screen and I'm getting lost. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it just it just shows us how many of us are fooled into thinking that what we see and what we experience is the is the world. When the reality is, number one, we're seeing a tiny fraction 
of the whole, a tiny fraction of the spectrum of light, a tiny fraction of the qualities of matter. We only are able to access the qualities of matter on everyday scales, a tiny fraction of the speeds that are possible in the universe, a tiny fraction of the gravitational fields that are that we, we never live near a black hole. We don't know what that's like in terms of our inner experience. And then the power of science is that it can break free of these arbitrary constraints that come from our particular biological makeup and allow us to imagine what the world is like in places that we can't directly visit. Look, we're less than five minutes in, Brian, but I think I'm going to have to dive in here because what you've just described, the way that we have what we and I think with you I can go here because I have heard you speak about this kind of stuff. The observable universe that we as humans have observed has led to, in many ways, the I guess the laws and structures that have created the world that we live in. And many of those were this is all we can see as far as we're concerned. The world ends there at that ocean and it's like there's dragons over that hill and here's the rules and there's a bloke in the sky with a thunderbolt and if you're a bad person you're going to get done and these kind of rules these theological kind of rules kind of emerged out of this and they still kind of govern our community today some of those laws became secular but they still exist written into constitutions and things what's your hope about trying to open more people's eyes to there's more do you do you want those the idea that there's more to kind of find its way into the way our world is governed ideally it would because when you have a cosmic perspective right a perspective that goes beyond the parochial concerns that are vital but the parochial concerns of life in your local neighborhood, whether that's truly a neighborhood in the conventional sense or a city or a state or a country or a continent or even the entire earth, it's all very local when you think about it from the cosmic perspective. You know, there's a beautiful pale blue dot image that Carl Sagan loved to put forward where you see earth floating in the darkness through the diaphanous rings of Saturn and you realize just how tiny we are. And even that's a tiny piece of a a much larger reality. So the point is, if you can acquire the ability to sort of seamlessly transit between parochial concerns that matter to everyday life and these more cosmic considerations, it allows you to put your life in a different framing. And that different framing can be incredibly valuable when you want to live among others who can equally have that cosmic perspective and things that seem so utterly essential from the parochial perspective is really, we're really going to fight over this little tiny fraction of a pixel, you know, in the grand cosmic scheme of things. So it doesn't completely change the way you behave, but it adds a layer that I believe in time can soften the things that really divide us because it allows us to recognize that in the larger scheme, we are all really part of the same whole. I remember as a kid, right, I went to a a school uh, where 
in every classroom, there was literally a statue on a wall of a of a white bearded man getting horrifically tortured to death uh, on this horrible piece of equipment that involved nails and wood, and there was blood. And every single room had this picture, and they would essentially, or, or a statue even, and go, yeah, it's your fault that he's like that. And I was a child. It wasn't great. I soon about eleven, I think. I was like, eh, no, no, I don't think so. And then over time, that separation happened more and more. But I remember observing people who, like grown men in in clothes that resembled dresses, uh, being just so like overwhelmingly reverent to this weird little box in the corner because they truly believed that. Uh, once they said some magic words, the the body of this person would arrive in a piece of bread in that cupboard, and I was like, "Wow, you you are just so uh, uh, prostrate, like just uh, like just I couldn't believe how how much they gave over their um, uh, agency to this thing." Yeah. Now, I have felt that, and I'm probably not going to. I'm not. I'm preaching to literally preaching to the choir here. Once I started that pale blue dot image that Carl Sagan spoke about is one thing, but once I once I started understanding the vastness of what it is and how my very life is dictated by the same laws that keep this liquid in this glass, that stop this glass from falling through my table, that allow the extraordinary electrons that are firing down a fiber optic cable between you and me in New York to happen. Like that is over. Like I am humbled by that. That is unbelievably incredible for me. It's and it's bigger than anything that ultimately could possibly invented by humans, which is what any of those kind of theologies are. Do you remember a moment? Did that, did, have you had a similar experience when you were like first opened your eyes to that? Well, you know, my upbringing was secular from the get go. I mean, oh, my parents were devout from the cultural sense to the Jewish faith, but not from a religious sensibility, you know, coming out of World War II and all the horrific things that happened to uh, the Jewish people. So it was coming from a somewhat different place. But I share the reverence that you describe when it comes to the utterly spectacular qualities of the physical world. And the fact that that, as you say, everything is governed as far as we can tell by the same physical laws and those laws perhaps have governed the universe since its inception, maybe 13.8 billion years ago and have been churning forward and ultimately giving rise to structures like the two of us and the other 8 billion people on the planet. It's just utterly miraculous. But what I would say is when it comes to religion, I share some of what you're saying, but I also color it in the following way. I also find it utterly remarkable that our species came up with these religious ideas. After all, as Stephen Jay Gould famously said, and I think it's quite accurate, all religions began with an awareness of death. Once we human beings gained mortality awareness, which is not a ubiquitous feature of all life on planet Earth. They're really only us and, you know, maybe elephants to some degree and, you know, some of the, the great apes. Only, only some life really 
thinks about death in one way or another, and I think our thinking about it is the most refined of any species on the planet. And once we realize that we're going to die, that is a potentially debilitating recognition that everything we do, everything we care about is going to disintegrate, is going to be gone. And that could have reduced us to what some researchers describe as quivering piles of protoplasm quickly and route to extinction, right? But we invented ways to deal with that recognition, and religion is one of them. We invented this idea that maybe death is not the end, maybe there is something else, and look at the power of that idea to, to motivate people and, and to meld people into groups. Now, it's not always good, right? I mean, there are some pretty negative consequences of this particular way of dealing with our recognition of our own mortality. But there are also some absolutely spectacular qualities, some some deeply motivating and, and moving qualities of feeling part of something even larger than life on planet Earth. So I see it as a good example of what we're capable of, what our imagination is capable of. And when seen in that light, I, I don't have as negative a ubiquitous and universal reaction to these ideas. I share the idea of the positivity that many religions have brought uh, our world. You may have guessed by the last name Ginsburg that there is some Judaism in my heritage. And uh, many ways I, sh I, I definitely identified with the secular traditions that you spoke about, the idea of, you know, getting together on a Friday and, you know, giving to charity and keeping a seat at a table. Like that sort of thing is an extraordinary kind of built-in uh, community cohesion that is built into tradition and was coupled with, you know, uh, this kind of divinity and then for some people has, has separated. So there's many religions that do have that, Friday prayers in, in Islam, et cetera, et cetera. For, for me, it's, it's, it's when the humans get involved and, and kind of pollute that and as you mentioned you know start to go well we're clearly better than those guys so therefore we get to be here and you don't and i don't, right. know, I don't know but I don't, as you mentioned it's like why are we fighting over this tiny little bit you know we're all we're all here the to, to take it even further and i'm you know i don't think i'm i've spoken a little bit about this before i'm nearly actually holy shit i'm sorry i'm just looking at the date today is my 13th sobriety birthday there you go. Oh, is that right? Uh, Congratulations. Yeah. Hey, it's the thing. It's just day at a time. And uh, part of being uh, in the particular fellowship of sobriety uh, that I'm part of, uh, it is a acceptance of something bigger than you, a higher power, they call it. I had a real problem with the word God. I chose I chose physics. I chose the universe. I chose yeah. there is nothing more like I cannot possibly be bigger than this thing and once that unlocked it was it was super easy yeah. for me and you know and i've i've kind of had that so i guess i'm kind of cheating with how reverent i am towards it right because it is it's something that i really think about quite a quite a bit but it is just something that you know you talked about the solution of death as as what religions kind of came up for came up with like the idea that me this kind of collection of atoms pretty much none of them were there when I got born. It's all bits of food and air that I've breathed in that I'm just kind of carrying in this kind of clump that will eventually go back to being, you know, plants and trees and, and just meld back into this giant bit of plasticine that becomes the planet and the universe. That is amazing yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah. 
it, it's totally amazing. And the 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 other related side of it, which is another way of describing my thoughts on religion, is that I revere the physical universe. I revere the laws of Maxwell and, and Einstein. I don't know if they're the final word. I think that they're probably not, but we're en route to a deep understanding of the laws that govern everything. And the fact that those laws can govern particles to come together in a brain that can somehow achieve conscious self-awareness. That, that, so it's the conscious self-awareness side of things, that inner world that, that is as spectacular as the outer world that, you know, we've been really successful at describing using mathematics. The fact that we do have these inner worlds and those inner worlds can imagine things that are not really out there in the world, that we can use creativity and, and the power of emotion and observation to come up with ideas like a god or ideas like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or ideas like the Mona Lisa that we can execute in works that can speak to us in ways that pure language can't, that mathematics can't. That to me is, is another side of what really is deserving of that sense of awe and wonder. I think it's uh, I think it's Brian Cox who's, who says it's three simple words, but it blows my mind. Atoms contemplating atoms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how is that even possible? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> I listen to Sam Harris sometimes and he goes, just sit in your consciousness. <laughs> the way he kind of whispers in my ears, it's wonderful. Our brains, while our brains did come up with this idea of a garden, is, you know, there's ideas that our brains are kind of wired for a divine being that are, you know, somehow being explored. We're also limited in our ability to conceive of some things, some concepts. Uh, vastness is one of them. Uh, even the vastness of our own country or the vastness of our own population, the vastness of our atmosphere, these things have uh, are rapidly pushing us towards a, a fairly simply explainable <laughs> and quite predictable conclusion. Um, how are we possibly able to contemplate the, the the vastness of space or the infinitely tiny, you know, quarks and things that roll around inside your strings if we can't get our heads around the idea of uh, hot, if we burn this thing, it puts too much of that in the air, too much of that in the air means we can't eat any food, no food, we die. Oh, I'll get back in my car. Like, <laughs> what are we going right. to do, Brian? Yeah, well, I don't know that I would compare the qualities necessary to fully embrace, say, the cosmos and the scales that have been revealed through powerful telescopes and powerful mathematical analyses and the consequences of our actions here on Earth. Because frankly, I think most people are able to grasp at least the idea of what you're describing, that doing X is not good for Y, and why has to do with our survival. I think people grasp that, but they don't absorb it deeply because of the timescales involved. And because the timescales are such that we're not likely to bear the worst burden of the consequences of today's actions. At least, you know, maybe, maybe the youngest generation will, but, you know, for those who are of an age that, 
you know, they are driving cars and have been driving cars for decades already. It's really hard to absorb the consequences that you are unlikely to ever directly experience. And that is just a quality of the human mind that we need to battle against. Now, now look, you know, there's an evolutionary way of thinking about this, which is, you know, we're, we're programmed to survive as individuals and the degree to which we needed to plan and think about things 40, 50, 100 years into the future as our brains were developing in the African savannah, we didn't need to do that. We just needed to survive till the next day and the next day after that. And so we've gotten pretty good at ensuring that day by day, we're going to be okay. And we're really bad at seeing, say, an exponentially growing curve that suggests that we're not going to be around much longer. Look, even with even with the virus, we saw this, the virus exponentially growing in terms of the amount of infection, which means that to handle it, you've got to act immediately. You've got to act before there's an issue before there's a big problem. Once there's a big problem, the exponential growth is on its way and you've lost the game. It's really hard for us to think in those terms. When, and you mentioned, you know, we're, we're talking about climate change. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about the, uh, the pandemic of uh, 2020, 2022, 23, uh, for people who are listening in five years from now or 10 or whatever. When those things happen or, you know, the vast amounts of communication sort of happen around that, we start to see almost this weaponized science denial and I, my, my palm and forehead equally hurt in measure from the amount of head slapping that I was doing, Brian, when you are speaking with people who are in denial of science, what do you find is the best way forward? Well, I, I can tell you what the worst way forward is, which I've seen some of my colleagues, some well-known colleagues do, which in gross description is to try to tell people that they're stupid. Mm. Say, hey, you know, you're just dumb. You don't get it. And obviously that might momentarily make the speaker feel a sense of, I have done one for science, but in reality they've not because it just polarizes people even more. Because typically people who are science deniers, I have found are not denying science because they've thought about it. They're not denying science because they went through some kind of rigorous analysis of the ideas and the data, and they just came to a different conclusion than than the rest of it. That's not what's happening. Science deniers are denying science because of the group to which they associate, and their identity is bound up with that group, and that group has taken a stance of denying what the ideas of science for whatever reason, typically because there's a sense of dis satisfaction with the status quo, a sense of fighting against the powers that be and science somehow is identified with those powers. And so it has nothing to do with analysis of the ideas and everything to do with the ways in which people are unhappy with their circumstance. So the only way to really deal with this is to deal with the circumstances 
that have led to that kind of sense of we need to fight against the establishment. We need to fight against those who want to keep us down. It is not a matter of better science education. Look, for some, I, I hate to speak in generalities. For some people, yeah. yeah. You sit them down, you explain the ideas, they'll get it better than they did before. And maybe they'll say, oh, now I agree with you. I think that's pretty rare. I think yeah. the way to deal with this over a large scale is not so much with the scientific ideas, but really listening to why people feel that they have not gotten their fair share, why they feel they've gotten the short end of the stick and try to bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. That's a extraordinarily compassionate answer, full of full of empathy. And um, I, I have certainly been guilty of engaging in, mate, you're an idiot, um, <laughs> early on. And how did that go? Uh, how did that go? Right. I quickly came to the conclusion that uh, no one's ever going to change their mind in a Facebook comments box, ever. So right. don't don't bother. Try and try and try and find a way to, as you mentioned, try and find a way to understand. Like, why is it you believe that what I have to say is a direct attack on you? It isn't. Yeah. We're just talking about you know a law of thermodynamics that has nothing to do with either of us. And you know how do we get to that? You know, <laughs> an agreement point there, though yeah. it is, it can be an enormous waste of time uh, to to get that far with with people, unfortunately. But it, as my brother would say, your garden, your path, and it's you know can be hard sometimes. Yeah. When it comes to the uh, the kind of curiosity that it takes to engage with those kind of conversations, though. We are all curious as kids. We have we have two, one's, one's just turned 19, the other one's three and a half, and I see curiosity in both of them. One of them's just, um, she's really engaged with university, the other one's just really engaged with, like, the world, and it's unbelievable to watch both of them. I understand that I'm quite like, we're quite lucky to have two kids that are quite curious. And your experience, what happens to our curiosity as we get older? Oftentimes it evaporates because at least in the educational system here, and I suspect it's probably not much different anywhere else in the world, there is such a focus on evaluation. There's such a focus mm -hmm. on assessment that the joy of curiosity really gets flattened under the incredible weight of anxiety, the anxiety to do well. And the reason one is trying to do well is generally not to understand the wonder of the ideas, but rather to get ahead, to climb that ladder one rung higher, you know, to do well early on, to go to the university you want to go to do. Why do you want to go to the university? Because I want to get the job. Why do you want that job? Because I want to make the money. I want the stuff. I mean, there's a tendency for that trajectory to take over. Obviously, it doesn't take over for everybody, but it's a fairly dominant quality, at least that I have seen in, for instance, the schools that my kids go to and the schools that I have spoken. Again, I, again, I don't like to speak in universals and generalities because there are some wonderful teachers out there and some mm. wonderful schools out there, and they know who they are. If they're listening to this, thank God you all exist. But yeah. it's not the norm. It's not the the average, not the status quo in, in many of these schools. And so what's the answer? 
Well, I don't fully know what the answer is, but I suspect that a thousand years from now, assuming that we're still here, education will, and maybe even sooner, maybe it's 10 years away with everything that's happening in artificial intelligence, but we need an education system that is not a one-size-fits-all approach. I think that's mm. the problem. We've been teaching one-size-fits-all for a really long time. You know, one teacher, bunch of students. And you know your style and your approach as a teacher will reach some of those students, hopefully, but mm -hmm. it's not going to reach all of them. And what you really need is an approach where the pedagogy is so carefully crafted to meet the student where they are which is a function of their upbringing and, and where they grew up and what kind of friends and what kind of parents and what kind of previous teachers. And if you can just sort of reach the kid where they are, the pedagogy and the student can lock in in a way that can allow the curiosity that you started the question with to, to flourish and to flower. But without that, I think it's hit or miss. And for some students, the curiosity will just be ignited by what the teacher is saying. But what I found is that for many, that won't be the case. And add to you know to hark back a little bit that sometimes that curiosity can definitely be ignited by um, what's called rabbit holing and uh, spending way too long on YouTube because suddenly it's all very interesting all of a yeah. sudden where previously it wasn't engaging. As we as we get older, the science is clear that no matter how sedentary you've been, if you start moving, you'll move more, and your quality of life and your experience of the world, your way your head works, why your body works, will all be better to be it and your experience of your vitality will 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 thrive i'm sorry it's on my brain I've, I've had some shitty hip surgery recently so i'm spending a lot of time in physio places where i'm the youngest person there by about 30 years so it's kind of it's kind of interesting do you think that uh, as adults who might be listening to this going i'm not curious at all i listen to the same songs i listened to when i was 20 i you know watch the same shows every night that this is it do you think as adults we have something to benefit by engaging our curiosity in a similar way that we might start to move our bodies in ways that we haven't for a long time? Well, it's funny that you, you mentioned that because I too have been suffering back problems and, and sciatica, you know, oh, I guess man. it's, you know, it's just the sort of thing that happens. And I finally decided to not do what I thought was the right thing, which is like, let it heal, you know, sit still until it's better. And I just decided to try to push through it and so far, I mean, who knows, it could be tomorrow that I can't move again, but so far, just getting up and moving and, and, and breaking free of what I was doing before is making you know, all the difference in the world. And I kind of see that almost as a metaphor. I mean, it's a literal kind of activity, of course, but I see it as a metaphor for kind of what we should be doing with our minds. If you can shake free of the mindset that you have been in perhaps for a long period of time by just doing different things with your mind, thinking about different things, engaging with the world in a different way. If you never wrote, start to write. If you never did any math, do a little bit of math. If you never painted, do so. You know, anything like that, I think can just shake up the way that you may have become entrenched in one way of looking at the world. And as we said, in the very first question, if you can engage with the world differently, it will 
enhance and deepen the way that you feel connected with the larger reality. So yeah, I think mind and body, it's critical in order to stay nimble that we don't simply do the same thing over and over again. Just walking around with Wolfie when he was really little, his teacher said, like, whatever your words you give him now, he'll start using in a year from now. So mm. I'd be walking around the block and it's not a tree. It's like, there's Melaleuca. That's a eucalypt. That's a red eucalypt. There's a Banksia. Oh, it's a bottle. And just like, I would seriously, Brian, like just 10 minutes of that, just observing my neighborhood, I would come back to my house and I would be like, what? What just happened? I felt like I'd had another cup of coffee, which is usually too many. And it was extraordinary how much my brain just woke up and started to look at things differently and observe things differently and solve problems differently just from, and now I do that every day and my life has changed in wonderful ways because of it. You, you work, uh, or largely you're very famously known for talking about string theory, quantum uh, physics, which for many people is like, well, that's a, that's a thing that is like, I don't have a telescope big enough for a, you know, microscope small enough to observe this thing. We're talking about particles that are smaller than quarks. Are there any kind of things that we can look around our world that we can observe that can show us evidence of, of quantum physics and start to kind of, kind of like, kind of scratch that a little bit? It's tough. I mean, in, in some sense, part of the beauty of quantum mechanics is that it does talk about a realm that's so far beyond what we can directly perceive And yet, once we understand that realm, we can then make predictions about things in the real world that we can see, even though we need mathematics and and very high-powered equipment to bridge the gap between the two. But I mean, one should note that without quantum physics, we would not be able to manipulate the motion of little particles among the ones that you mentioned, our electrons, which of course is how we get electric currents, we would not be able to manipulate them through tiny integrated circuits. And without the integrated circuits, there'd be no chips. And without the integrated circuit, therefore, there'd be none of the technology that has radically transformed how each and every one of us lives. No personal computers, no cell phones, none of that. None of it would exist. In fact, you can estimate that a significant fraction of the world's gross product, right? Take it to America, the gross national product of America is is reliant on the electronics industry and the electronics industry is reliant on quantum mechanics. So if you ask, where can I see quantum mechanics at work? You see it at work (laughs) everywhere around you, even though you can't peer with your naked eye and see the motion of those electrons without our understanding of how they behave, which comes from quantum physics, we would not be able to control them in the manner that is required. We, we all understand, we've seen the, it's usually, it's a drawing because we can't yeah. find a picture of it. Uh, there's a nucleus and there's things orbiting it. It looks like a tiny little solar system, like flying around. Sometimes there's more things in those orbits. Sometimes there's less things in those orbits. And the, the, the stuff you're talking about is smaller than the things that make up the things we're seeing flying around in those circles. Well, the electrons usually would be the things flying around in the circles, although the flying around in circles is uh, an approximation that is pretty misleading if you actually understand the theory a little bit more deeply. It's more like 
a cloud of electrons whose positions are nebulous because of the uncertainty principle of quantum mechanics. But yes, that's the scale at which we're talking about. You know, atoms are roughly 10 to the minus 10 meters across. I mean, you know, 10 to the minus 10, right? That That's so, you know, decimal point with, you know, all these zeros and a one after it. It's, it's well beyond anything that we've experienced. And the electrons themselves, we don't know how big they are. They, they could potentially have effectively no size at all. They could really be fundamental in the most fundamental use of that terminology. But yes, those are the kinds of things that are racing through integrated circuits and making the electronics that we have around us do what we want them to do. And it took a generation of scientists from about 1905 is when Albert Einstein writes what effectively is, say, the second paper on quantum mechanics. Max Planck writes the first one about 1900. Einstein writes the second pivotal paper. So it takes from there until about 1926 before somebody else named Erwin Schrodinger writes down an equation that describes these qualities of the microscopic realm, Schrodinger's equation. And then from there, it's a good, you know, 60 years later where people go from basic understanding to leveraging that understanding to apply it to do things. And so it's a wonderful story of completely theoretical, mathematical ideas, trying to explain some pretty esoteric data that comes out of experiments that were taking place in the early part of the 1900s to something that changes life. So it's esoteric in 1900, and it is life-changing by the time you get to our current era. Schrodinger is a good swear word to yell as you reach your USB cable around the side of your laptop and only find out if you've got it the right way around upon experimenting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's the, 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 the USB superposition, it's a beautiful thing. Yes. It's always a beautiful thing. The, the, once we start getting down to this level, though, this tiny, tiny level, there's, there's stuff that is absolutely mind-boggling. Like, uh, I believe it's called spooky action at a distance, how two particles that as humans i was talking about this with my wife at dinner last night like there's as a human i can only uh, perceive that something could move or i could interact with an object if i can either touch it or exert a force upon it and far enough away uh, like a bullet or something like that i can exert a force upon an object that's about the so that's about it you know yeah. uh, i'm gonna have to fire a rocket at an asteroid to move it but the idea that two particles smaller than anything we can so many zeros can interact with each other from a miles away. That's pretty interesting. How do we even get our heads around that? Can you can you talk me through that? It's very interesting because when I took quantum mechanics as an undergraduate, you know, I'm getting up there in years now, but I took quantum mechanics as an undergraduate in the 1980s. And this idea of spooky action that you're talking about is called quantum entanglement is the more precise terminology. It was never mentioned in the class on quantum mechanics. So kind of in the early days of people coming to grips with quantum mechanics, I think the other qualities of quantum mechanics, the fact that it describes the world's evolution in terms of probabilities instead mm -hmm. of definite outcomes, people had to grapple with a radically new way of thinking about the world. 
Maybe they weren't ready to take on quantum entanglement, but now quantum entanglement has rightly assumed its place at the center of the subject. And this is something that Schrodinger himself predicted way back in the 19, late 20s, early 30s. He described quantum entanglement as the centerpiece of quantum mechanics, even if people weren't really paying attention. Einstein himself was so offended by the possibility of quantum entanglement, that two particles, as you say, arbitrarily far apart, that had interacted in the past in the right way, but they're now arbitrarily far apart. They act as though they are one. They act as though they are one, even though they could really be on opposite sides of the universe. And Einstein said, come on, that can't possibly be how the world really works. This must be a failure of quantum mechanics if it is saying that this is how things behave. Nonsense, he said. In fact, he wrote a beautiful paper in 1935 with two colleagues, Podolsky and Rosen, where he laid out an alternative view for why two distant objects might seemingly behave as though they are one, but they're not really. It was this alternate approach. And that alternate approach ultimately gave rise to a prediction that could be tested in an experiment. This is the insight of a physicist named John Bell. And when it was tested, Einstein's proposal failed. It didn't, it didn't work. In fact, this weird quality of quantum mechanics that distant objects really can behave as, as though they are one, it was confirmed by the experiment. You know, Einstein was already gone by that point. This is in the early 60s. And as you may know, it was this year the Nobel Prize was awarded for work on quantum entanglement. So this is now mainstream physics. How do you wrap your mind around it? It's pretty tough because it's so unfamiliar. Look, Einstein had a pretty agile mind and he couldn't really fully wrap his mind around. I mean, he understood it. Don't get me wrong. He couldn't accept it. That's how foreign it seemed to him. Now, you know how it works. Something that's foreign to one generation, it becomes commonplace to the next generation, right? I mean, imagine trying to describe what we're doing right now, having this conversation on opposite ends of the world in real time. Imagine trying to explain that, you know, to uh, one of our forebears 10,000 years ago. They'd be like, what are you talking about? That's nuttiness. You know, but things that are nutty at one time become, you know, blasé. We become blasé about it in the future. We are now not arguing about quantum entanglement. We're now leveraging it to build things like quantum computers. So quantum computers make use of quantum entanglement in a fundamental way. And quantum computers are real. And, and they're just really starting to have a revolutionary impact on the kinds of calculations that we do. But Quantum computers are applied quantum entanglement. <laughs> you know, it's no longer something we argue about. It's something that we just use. Are we playing with stuff we don't quite understand or just like, well, oh, they work this way? It's a good question. And, and I don't mean to sound overly philosophical, but it does depend on what you mean by understand. You know, if you mean by understand that we have a deep intuitive sense of why something is true, then I would say maybe we don't fully understand quantum entanglement. But there's another type of understanding, which is you say to yourself, I know that my intuition was only built 
through evolutionary processes to understand the things that my intuition needed to understand so I could survive. And our forebears didn't need to understand quantum entanglement, and that's why it's foreign to our intuition. I'm going to accept that. I will thereby change my definition of understand to not be, I have a deep intuitive sense of why it's true, and rather change it to, do I have a deep mathematical handle on this phenomenon, allowing me to make predictions that I can test in the laboratory, and if my predictions are borne out by the experiments, I will say I understand it. If I can make predictions that are true and I can do things, then I understand it. So at that level, the answer is yes, we do understand it. But no, I I can't say that if you were to wake me at three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning and say, you know, quantum entanglement, do you feel it in your bones? Uh, I suspect I'll say, I'm still struggling to get that one in my bones. Mate, I'm still struggling to get past the buckaroo bonsai's fourth dimension. I like to get to 10, 10 dimensions. That is, that, that's, that's beyond the, what my brain can kind of think about. You know, I, and I say this a lot. I talk about it with sobriety as like, you know, the idea that if I could ever live life without alcohol, it'd be like if I asked you to come over and meet the kids, but I blindfolded you and said, now describe to me the cars on the street. You'd be yeah. like, well, I know they're there, but I, and there's this, just like this empty thought bubble where the answer should be. Like, similarly, I can perceive three up, down, left, right, here, there, four, five, ten. Uh, my brain just stops working around that point. What are the repercussions of t- ten dimensions on on, on yeah. my life, Brian? Well, well, first I should say you're not alone in not being able to really picture or think about ten dimensions. I can't either, and I've worked on the subject for close to 40 years. So there are very few, if any, human beings that can really picture it. There's sort of a fun story of a mathematician at Princeton, whether this is apocryphal or true, I don't really know. But the story goes that he's lecturing on six-dimensional spaces to a class of students at Princeton. He looks at their faces and he sees they're not understanding. So he walks to the corner of the room and kind of thinks it through and he comes back and says, aha. I I get it. This is very hard to picture in six dimensions, but it's really easy to picture in 12 dimensions. You know, now, now I, you know, I, I, I suspect, I suspect that's just a story, but who knows? But what do we do? We again, use our mathematics and mathematics is a very powerful tool for describing things that the human brain can't directly see. And again, we see in three dimensions, presumably because our world only has three big dimensions that we need to navigate in everyday life. That's, you know, left, right, back, forth, up, down. As you say, those are the three that are that are easy to see. And they're easy because our brains were under evolutionary pressure to survive. And to survive, they needed to navigate the dimensions that are all around us. But that doesn't mean that there can't be other dimensions tightly curled up, very small, so small that the eye can't directly perceive them and our bodies don't directly move through them. And therefore, survival has nothing to do with these extra dimensions. And yet they're there. So sort of the best we can do is use math and and analogies. Analogies are really good too. I mean, one that I'm fond of, imagine you have a garden hose and you are looking at that garden hose stretched out from like, you know, a kilometer away, you know, a mile away or so. From that distant vantage point, that garden hose stretched out is going to look like a line 
You're going to think it only has one dimension, you know, back and forth. If you imagine a little ant on the garden hose, you will think that the ant can only walk back and forth. That's all that's available to the ant on the garden hose. But then if you take a pair of binoculars and you zoom in on the garden hose, another dimension becomes visible, a curled up circular dimension, the girth of the garden hose that wraps around the garden hose. And now you realize that the ant can not only walk back and forth, but it can also walk around the garden hose, a second curled up dimension that you didn't know about from a distant vantage point. And maybe the garden hose example describes our universe. The back and forth of the garden hose, the big dimension is like left, right, back, forth, up, down, the big dimensions that we experience. And maybe just as the ant has an additional curled up tiny dimension available to it, Maybe our world has additional curled up tiny dimensions too. They're just so tiny that we've never seen them and we've never directly accessed them. You may say, okay, then why in the world would you talk about them? And the answer is when you want to go beyond Einstein, when you want to go beyond quantum mechanics, the mathematics almost ineluctably leads you to the need for extra dimensions of space beyond the ones that we directly experience. And that's why we take these ideas seriously, even though we've never seen these extra dimensions. The, the idea that, like, to have you even just say, oh, they tested Einstein's theory and it didn't work. You know, we brought up with this idea that we associate this name with super smart, always right. You know, the idea that these unbelievably clever physicists can have their math start to not work uh, once they get to certain, you know, trying to find the answers to certain things is 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 wild and important. Yes, and, and then yeah, I, I used to speak about this with uh, Matt. He was one of the people who worked on a show I was in. He was the first person we talked about Big Bang, which is who knows what, then explosion and then expansion. We're just constantly expanding. Then he says, "Oh, but you haven't heard about the Big Bounce." I was like, "What's that?" And he's like, "Well, everything goes out." Then it comes back, then it goes out, then it comes back, goes out. I'm wondering the trillionth iteration of that. And I, I kind of like, like <laughs> looked up into the right for about five minutes <laughs> as my yeah. brain tried to try to pull that together. And then the one the other day, this idea that there is uh, two rock, I think. There's like, we are in this, this version going this way, but there's an equal mirror one going that way. And then the idea was that, oh, now the maths works. Uh, the idea that you as physicists just question each other all the time. Like if my wife questions me, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like I hold on to my truth. You know, how do you as, a, you know, this super esteemed world famous physicist, how do you deal with people going, Brian, you got that one wrong? Well, most of the time we get things wrong. I think that's sort of important to know. I don't mean wrong in terms of making a mistake even though that does happen on occasion. But, you know, 99.9% of our ideas are wrong in the sense that they're not relevant to reality. The number of papers that we physicists publish versus the number of those papers that really matter to a deep understanding of the world, you know, it's a really high ratio of failures in terms of that measure of success being, does it actually describe the real world. So we are constantly open to being wrong because we are wrong most of the time. So it's not an unfamiliar place to be. But Einstein, I think, provides a really good example. So, you know, he writes down his equations of general relativity in 1915. 
1927, he's confronted by a Belgian priest named George Lemaitre, who says, Einstein have applied your equations to the entire universe and space should be expanding according to your equations, Dr. Einstein. And Einstein says to Lemaitre, your calculations are correct, but your physics is abominable. Einstein was saying, there is no such thing as an expanding universe. That's nonsense. And then a few years later, Edwin Hubble, using the powerful telescope at Mount Wilson Observatory, finds that the distant galaxies are all rushing away. The universe is expanding. And what does Einstein do? He does an about face and says, I got it wrong. I didn't even trust my own equations, the consequences of my own mathematics he didn't trust. But it's hard to have a flexible mind on every aspect of the world. And this is not an isolated e example on, on other things, too. Einstein didn't believe in black holes. They weren't called that back then, but he didn't believe what we now call black holes exist. He was really on the fence as to whether ripples in the fabric of space could ever happen. These are so-called gravitational waves. But, you know, in, in 2015, we detected the first ripples in the fabric of space, gravitational waves. You know, the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago was for detailed observations establishing that black holes are real. And now the Event Horizon Telescope, this consortium of radio telescopes around the world, They've seen black holes directly. We have pictures of black holes. You know, that's, that's an amazing thing. And again, Einstein didn't know that this is how the world works, you know. So you're saying that Einstein might have found the same thing and gone, yeah, that can't be right. Yeah. And then stuck with this. Not it's as it is. That, well, there's something to learn from that, I think. <laughs> to learn from that, you know. Yeah. It, it, like you say, if someone like Einstein can be wrong and wrong repeatedly... You just yeah. have to have great respect for the universe and its immense subtleties and to recognize that the human brain is a deeply valuable guide to the nature of the world. And the fact that we can get as far as we have as a community is, is wondrous. Just a moment away from Professor Brian Green to say that the tickets for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival are on sale right now. We're doing NTNN, NNN, in Melbourne at the Malthouse Theatre in South Bank. It's going to be absolutely sick. I have special guests that will blow your socks off. And it is a testament to the the show and what the show is doing that I'm, to, I'm talking about like gargantuan names in Australian news and television. Some of them I just, like, I don't even know some of these people before this. And I just shot a text. I say, hey, I'm doing this thing. Like, on their Twitter even, I'm doing this thing. Here's a YouTube video. Would you be interesting? Yes, I'm in. Like, that was it. That was the pitch. And that was the response. And that's a testament to what we're doing. NTNN, NNN. It's real stories, fake news. It's a live fake news show. And we're doing it every night during the comedy festival from the 30th of March to the 9th of April. No two shows are the same. So you can come to more than one show and it, nothing would be the same at all. Love to see you there. Sydney Comedy Festival is also on sale. Manning Bar, May 3rd. I think we're doing five nights or six nights in a row there. So amazing. It's so sick. It's fucking great fun. Sylvia Jeffries the other night was unbelievable. But you had to be there because it's live and it only happens once. And that's the beauty of it, which I love. Back with Professor Brian Green in just a moment. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I've got to thank, uh, I believe it was Stan Lee, the great comic publisher of the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, and now now movie mogul, even though he's no longer with us. Because in a, as, a, as a teenager, as a young teenager, on Monday I would, of one week I would read about Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, and the following Monday I would read about the amazing Spider-Man, and then there was another one that I believe, yeah, then it was X-Men the following Monday after that, which Spider-Man also appeared in. In the same timeline... Di- completely different characters, same dude, and I guess you know it helped me get my head around uh, this uh, kind of this multiverse scenario. What has that kind of idea gotten right about the multiverse? What are some gaps we need to fill in? Well, there 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 are a lot of gaps, and look, I don't take exception to creative artists taking poetic license with some of the ideas that physics has come up with. But the idea of a multiverse is not a single idea. There are many flavors of the multiverse that science has come to. Two, perhaps, are worth quickly describing. One has to do with the Big Bang. And the Big Bang, our theory suggests, may not have been a one-time event. There may be many Big Bangs giving rise to their own realms of expanding space, with our expanding space just being sort of one bubble universe in a grand cosmic bath of other bubble universes populating this larger landscape of reality that has multiple universes, therefore calling it a multiverse is is a sensible idea. Another way that this notion comes up has to do with quantum physics, what we were talking about before. Once we learn that the world, according to quantum mechanics, evolves in a probabilistic manner, say, where the equations say there's a 50% chance of the electron being here and a 50% chance of it being over there, when we actually measure the electron, we always find it either there or over there. We never find half of it in each place. It's always one or the other. So the question is, when you measure the electron, what happens to the other possibility? Well, one idea that people have come up with is that other possibility does happen. It does take place, but in another universe. And in that other universe, you find it at that other location. So there are many use with many realities, with every possibility allowed by the quantum mechanical laws being realized in its own separate realm. They might say, that's a pretty extravagant way of dealing with this probabilistic nature of quantum mechanics. But And this is something that you'll just have to take my word on. I I don't like 
forcing you to take my word on many things, but this one is hard if you don't know the math. From the mathematical standpoint, this is the most economical way of interpreting the equations that Schrodinger wrote down way back in the 1920s. So the most economical interpretation of the math of quantum mechanics is that there are many realities in which each of the possibilities allowed by the quantum math actually takes place. As you were speaking, Brian, it felt like, again, when I'm at my rehab physio and they're making my glute mead try and stretch in ways it hasn't done so in years, I can feel neurons in my brain forging new neural pathways like a fucking icebreaker across my concept of <laughs> like just cracking things apart. I'm trying to follow you as I'm feeling literal blooms explode in bits of different lobes of my brain. It's wonderful. Yeah. And I can't wait to see you do this live because I might just jump out of my chair and, shield and shout, but I, pro <laughs> I won't. I promise I won't. You say this beautiful line, life is physics orchestrated. And hearing everything you've just said about multiverses and things like that, like, mate, it's 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 five to ten. I've got I've got to get the kid to swimming, and I've got to do this, and I've got to get that. Ba 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 ba. Brian, what has this got to do with me and my life? Sure, there's seventeen versions of me, but that none of them have to get the groceries right now. There's too much laundry, and my boss has given me the shits. Like, what does all this have to do with us in our everyday? Just trying to get through the system that we call life today. Well, it's two things. One is it, it, it shows the amazing capacity of the human mind to penetrate into obscure qualities of reality. And that to me is deeply thrilling in its own right. But for those who are not moved by that particular perspective, what this all means is that we are part of a much grander whole. There's so much more to reality than the everyday. And you have to deal with the everyday. I too, dropping my kids off at school when they were younger, walking the dogs, which I have to do shortly after we conclude our conversation, all the everyday stuff, yeah, it does. <laughs> you will, have you'll to be get trusting done. the atomic. You'll be trusting the atomic bonds in the plastic bag as you reach down to pick up dog that's, shit off the streets that's of Manhattan. That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right. And and but the but the point is, while all of that is vital and important. It's only one layer of life. It's only one layer of reality. And if you can grasp these ideas. They allow you to live on multiple planes. There's a plane of everyday life, really important, but there's also the plane that takes a step back and recognizes that we are part of this grander whole described by the laws of physics. And there are other layers too, where we recognize the power of the human mind to create you know, great beauty, to, to illuminate spectacular wonder, to, to give us a sense of connection to an even bigger reality. And, and the fact the fact that we bags of particles, which really is all that we are, the fact that bags of particles can do all that is so spectacularly gratifying that if you can catch a glimpse of this, it just adds so much wonder to your own life while you're dropping off your kids or walking the dog or getting the groceries to in parallel with that, see the world from a cosmic point of view. It certainly has helped me when I have been struggling. I know I have, I've struggled quite a bit some, at some point in my life. I, I got quite I'm, I'm mentally unwell at one point in my life. The ideas that, oh, I am, I'm just this tiny itty bitty thing that 
you know, the, the vastness of this problem, this particular thing that I am thinking means the universe actually doesn't. For a while, I needed meds to help my brain get to that point. But now I'm able to, if I can catch myself in the moment, go, oh, actually, this is, no, in five minutes, this will be different. And then <laughs> it's been really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's only really helpful. You know, some people hear the description that you just gave and they said how how depressing it must be to think of ourselves as these little tiny creatures in this vast darkness of the cosmos. How frightening that sounds. But I like to flip it around and say how spectacular it is that these little tiny creatures can get to the point of recognizing their connection to this grander whole and to appreciate the fleeting moment that the laws of physics allow them to exist. And that is cause for celebration as opposed to a dark view of reality. Mate, when I am walking now, we both walk past the melaleuca tree and Wolfie and I smell the blossoms because it's the time of year when the melaleucas blossom. It makes those moments just absolutely crystally, perfectly pristine. Yeah. And if I'm lucky enough to get all the other shit out of my head and I can have this moment with my boy who will never be this small ever again, yeah. it, that's the stuff. It makes my heart warm even just talking to you about it. And for yeah. me, it enhances my experience of being human. Yeah, it's exactly, exactly right. Brian, I can't wait to see you come play live. Come play like you've got a band. Though you should consider taking a band. I mean, it would be really good. <laughs> Difficult to tour, though. It's expensive. A lot of costs when you're housing 10 people. But let's – come on, your talk with a bloke and a gong? Come on. Yes, It'd be exactly. great. <laughs> That'll be the, the next incarnation. Yeah. This is the so unplugged. Kind. This is the unplugged version. <laughs> <laughs> Wild. Uh, Brian, you're too good to me. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Great talking to you. That was Professor Brian Grain. Oh, my goodness. My brain feels like it's had a Thai massage by six people at once. <laughs> there was literally a moment of there where I felt just blooms of neurons exploding in my head as he tried to explain stuff to me. I felt the physical sensation of more blood flow into my brain just to try and beef up the processing power that I needed to, to understand what it is he was speaking with me. Unreal. He's written so many books. They're all very accessible, though, which I really love about his writing. Get on board. He's also great. His audiobooks are really good, which I do very much enjoy. But go see him live. He's coming to Australia. You get to be in the same room as him. Uh, tickets are in the show notes. Tickets in the show notes for my show as well, NTNN NNN. We start in Melbourne on the 30th of March, the day after my birthday. You're more than welcome to come and give me a present. Uh, don't have to give me a present. Just show up. Bring a friend. Uh, come more than once. It's never the same show, same show twice. And Sydney Comedy Festival, May 3rd onwards. Tickets are in the show notes for all of that. I'll be back on Wednesday. I love you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Big thanks to Andy Marr on audio and video post-production. Bree Steele on research and support for this show. Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of everything. Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider, who made all the music. And you for listening. Tell a friend. Please tell a friend. That's the number one way that people can get to know about this show. So wherever you can, however you can, spread the word. Thanks for listening. Speak to you Wednesday. 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 